we are not most fully ourselves. Uh, we are not most fully healthy and whole in isolation or in exclusion, but rather through cooperation and seeking the good of one another, we also realize that which is best for ourselves. Welcome back to another episode of Holy Heretics, Losing Religion and Finding Jesus. We are your hosts, Melanie. And Gary Allen. And today we have the privilege of introducing you to Dr. Russell Johnson, who is not only a professor at the University of Chicago Divinity School, he has also done stand-up comedy. I met him over 10 years ago at a summer camp where I had the privilege of being on staff with him and his now wife, Carissa. But since then, he has gone on to earn a PhD in philosophy of religions from the University of Chicago. And he now studies religious ethics and the philosophy of communication. His research focuses on disagreement, antagonism, and how groups imagine and treat their enemies, which is super relevant to what is going on today in our political climate. Um, his work is interdisciplinary and draws on resources from rhetorical theory, Christian theology, peace and conflict studies, and dialogical philosophy to explore how the good guys versus bad guys mindset distorts people's perceptions of not only themselves, but also their opponents. And he teaches courses. He teaches on nonviolent direct action, argumentation and epistemology, and religion and film. He's also been a prolific writer, and one article that stood out to me was called A Religion of Losers, Dissenting Voices in Church History. And I was thinking, hmm, maybe we should have named this podcast A Religion of Losers. Uh, <laughs> some of the current and upcoming courses he's teaching include one called Prophetic Speech from Babylon to Birmingham and Star Wars and Religion, which is, I would love to be a fly on the wall in that class. So thank you so much for joining us today, Russell. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Super excited to have you, Russell. I must say I'm a little bit jealous of your academic background. Pretty impressive. I mean, you've got, you've got uh, Duke, you've got University of Chicago, except for those four years you kind of went slumming at University of North Carolina, but we, we won't talk about that. So I'd like to leave the podcast. How do I? <laughs> yes. How do yeah. I turn you can, you it can do off? that. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, I, you know, I was I was going to kind of uh, talk about Duke and Carolina basketball, but based on the year that Duke is having, I, I don't think I really have a leg to stand on. So, so we'll we'll just move past that pretty quickly. Speaking of a religion of losers, yeah. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So Melanie actually knows you, but I don't. So can you give me and our listeners just a brief background uh, about your faith journey? And then also what led you to study religion and philosophy and even maybe even just to go into academia in the first place? Sure thing. Yeah, I, I grew up uh, in, in Massachusetts uh, and uh, at a Baptist church. Um, so a Baptist church, but in Massachusetts. So maybe a little bit different uh, <laughs> from, from your typical Southern Baptist experience. Um, and uh, I, went, I went to the uh, University of North Carolina. Uh, and while I was there, I was... Uh, spending my school year as part of, uh, you know, a relatively liberal, secular university uh, and in the theater department, among other things. Um, so uh, very much on that side of the culture war. And then during the summers, I was working at the, the camp that Melanie mentioned, uh, a, a definitely conservative evangelical camp. And so I was 
uh, living on both sides of the uh, culture war uh, back and forth uh, for, for a few years there and found myself constantly playing translator between them, uh, saying things like, well, that's not exactly what they believe, or, well, yeah, but you, if you understand it from this perspective, then it's a little bit different. Um, and, and from that experience, I, I got really interested in the questions of talking past one another and misunderstanding and how difficult it can be for us to make sense of the viewpoints and actions of groups that we find ourselves opposed to. Uh, and so from that, I got into questions about the philosophy of language, questions about the psychology of conflict, um, and questions about uh, Christianity and Christian, Christian theology and disagreement, um, trying to understand, uh, well, how do we navigate these disagreements well? Uh, this was at the time of the, the height of the new atheists. Um, so authors like Richard Dawkins and Christopher mm. Hitchens, Sam Harris, Daniel Dennett were very popular. And I remember reading those books um, because I was, you know, part of the apologetics group um, and thinking, gosh, these guys don't understand Christianity at all, or at least the Christianity that they're talking about has very little to do with the faith that I have. And then I had that sort of that sort of moment of reflection of like, oh, gosh, do all the apologetics communities that I'm a part of are are we doing the same thing with atheists? Like, are we also just completely misreading what they're saying and, and why? And so I started actually got started studying religion primarily to understand atheism and to understand the various forms that it's taken over the years um, and and to get a better sense of where those conversations went poorly uh, and, and how those conversations could go better. Hmm. Hmm. That sounds very needed. <laughs> I think we all need training in that sort of um, way of thinking and and even just being able to put ourselves in the other's shoes because we just get so caught up in the community that we feel comfortable in and in the thinking that we feel comfortable in that it's so hard to um it's so hard for us to even comprehend how another person might think or perceive something differently um and and so that camp that you were talking about Russell that we both were at like you said was super highly conservative and very steeped in that, like, defend your faith mentality as if, like, the world is going to attack it and you, like, it needs defending and you need to, like, be ready with your shield and your sword. Um, what if so Professor Kevin Sorbo in God's Not Dead 2 tells you that you have to... <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's very much that mentality. So I'm wondering how that influence from that camp and then from other things influenced your faith and then ultimately influenced your decision to to study what you've studied but also then to get a phd in religion and philosophy yeah so i mean i i, I gained a lot from my experience as a student and then my my six summers working on staff uh at that camp uh obviously most clearly a wife uh but also, <laughs> I learned some things. <laughs> uh, one of the things that I think is the strength of, of the apologetics discourse in this camp in particular um, is that it gives people a framework for understanding how different ideas that may not seem related are related. Um, and so, you know, this, this camp, they divided um, the six major worldviews, um, Marxism, secular humanism, Islam, Christianity, 
postmodernism and new age spirituality. Uh, I mean, that's of course, you know, a, a rough division and, uh, the, you know, the, there's so much more. And I, th I think they acknowledge that, um, but it allowed you to realize, oh, what I believe about biology impacts what I believe about you know, ethics and what I believe about history uh, will influence how what I believe about politics and, and so on. And so it, it showed the connections between ideas um, mm. in a way that like if you're, you know, a 17 year old and all of a sudden you or, you know, you go off to college and now it's like, here's Marxism and here's queer theory and here's Keynes and here's, you know, Game of Thrones. Like it's just kind of all in there and you have to have some sort of framework for understanding that. So that's one of the, the positive things um, I gained from that in addition to lifelong friends and, and, a, and a solid community. One of the um, one of the things that I started to move away from, though, is, as you mentioned, this kind of defensive antagonistic framework that was pretty prevalent. So there's this understanding that, you know, it's Christianity versus Islam or Christianity versus secularism. Mm. And uh, I, I started to see that that might not be uh, the best, no matter what comes after the, the verses, that might not be the best way to understand how Christianity, uh, how the gospel at least relates to other attitudes and in particular to other groups. Um, and so this defensive antagonistic us versus them mindset, um, that started to seem less uh, authentic to the, the gospel, which as we, you know, we learn in, in Luke uh, is good news that shall be for all people. Um, so it's, it's a, it's a good message for everyone rather than good for us, but not for them. Hmm. That's, that's beautiful. Yeah. I like that, Russell. I think so many of us grew up in just these faith traditions that were fairly dualistic, uh, which is pretty American when you think about it. I mean, we, we like to see the world in very binary ways, good guys over here, bad guys over there, Democrats you know, Republicans, liberals, conservatives, and it often creeps into Christianity and language like saved or not saved or straight or gay, Christian and Muslim. And I think we just automatically go there in, in maybe the early part of life because it's a, an identification factor. Like I know who I am based on who I am not, or I know who I am based on who, who I'm against. So, um, how would you say that that mindset has distorted the gospel? And, and then maybe what do we replace it with? Because when I, when I look at my friends and, and even a lot of my family members, they truly see the world in a very culture warrior mentality. It, it's, it's them against the world and anybody who's not them is the other or, or the enemy. So how do we move past that? It's a good question. Yeah. I mean, so you mentioned the some of the American forms that it takes, but this us versus them attitude, I mean, you can find this in pretty much every culture going all the way back, including, of course, in, in the Bible, um, you know, sort of the divide between Jews and Greeks and the I thank God that I am not like other men attitude <laughs> that, uh, that we associate with uh, with the Pharisees in the gospel stories. It, it, it's all the way back there. I think part of the allure of us versus them is that's the easiest way to form in us is that we are communal beings and we need relationships and we need to feel like we're part of something. And uh, that's a way of gaining meaning, gaining uh, trust, uh, having a sense of belonging, which is a vital human need. And so setting it up in us versus them is a good way of, um, or rather a quick way of 
scratching that need for belonging and that need for people to feel good about themselves, you know, like that we're not like them, we are us. Um, and so we all find ourselves in multiple us versus them dualisms at various times in our life. And, and when something gets polarized, that's often when those differing us versus them, those differing distinctions map onto one another and become one grand uh, distinction between the good guys and the bad guys, between us and the the others. I think part of the message of Christianity, an essential part of the gospel message, is a rejection of all us versus them ways of thinking, speaking, and acting, and replacing them instead with us for them and God for us all. And this goes all the way back, I mean, I'm associating this with Christianity, but this goes all the way back to the original covenant with Abraham, when God said, I will set you apart, and through you through you and your seed, all nations of the world will be blessed. Uh, that it's not, you're the one I'm choosing, and everybody else can go to hell. Um, it's, I'm choosing you, you are set apart as, I'm forming a new us, but this is not an us that gets to succeed at the expense of them. This is the us whereby I will uh, manifest my love and my care for all of the thems around you. Mm. Um, and of course, the the Israelites did not do a perfect job with that. And then, of course, the disciples were tasked with a similar ministry of reconciliation and love and being called out to the groups that they were um, opposed to, you know, Samaritans, for instance, and centurions, uh, Romans. Uh, and they did all they also didn't do a great job with it. So we don't have a lot of perfect examples of this us for them, God for us all uh, mindset. Um, but it's it's what the it's what Jesus was teaching, and it's an alternative way of forming an us. So it scratches the same need for community and belonging, but it's a belonging not rooted in exclusion. Um, and I think one of the negative effects of the us versus them framework is, at least in American Christianity, is that the more we rely on that, the more the us becomes simply defined as a not them. Um, so, mm. you know, it can make being not them sufficient for being us. Um, you know, we, we see this even with uh, the, the ready embrace of Donald Trump by evangelical Christians, because if he's not a liberal, then he's one of us, even though mm. all evidence seems to suggest that he isn't. Um, <laughs> and so there's a, a negative effect on conservative <laughs> Christianity whose main public voice, whose main political voice is opposition to liberalism, progressivism, secularism, multiculturalism, um, and, but also a negative effect on liberal Christianity because so many liberal churches, they feel such a need to emphasize, hey, we're not like them, um, that the actual good news kind of gets lost in the stir and the, the felt pressure to distinguish yourselves from you know, the more judgmental uh, conservative side of things. And so I think that that us versus them has a negative effects on, on both sides of whenever it gets drawn. Um, it also has negative effects on how we perceive ourselves. Uh, if we divide the world into good guys and bad guys, then if we do something bad, we're one of the bad guys. <laughs> um, and mm. so it, it makes us more reticent to confess our own sins and our own complicities in injustices because uh, and to find common ground with people that we uh, might agree with or want to be close with, because that's seen as losing an identity or losing uh, goodness. Um, and mm -hmm. so the the us uh, for them, the the biblical message is also uh, synonymous with all are sinners saved by the 
grace of God uh, that all of us fall short of things all of the time. And it's not the the big distinction between the good guys and the bad guys uh, doesn't matter. It, it's it's the the distinction between um, sin and grace that matters. Mm. You know, I, I was actually in a Zoom like. Bible study group, I guess is what you would call it, um, where we were talking about the verse, um, and now I cannot think of the reference off the top of my head, but the one where it's like, I am convinced that neither life nor death nor angels nor principalities can Romans separate us 8, from- 38 and 39. Wow. Sorry, I'm just flexing. Uh, I'm, this is bad for the podcast. <laughs> That's impressive. Uh, That's please, very impressive. Please start the verse over again. No, I can't even quote the whole thing anymore, even though I was an Awana's kid and I used to know it. Um, but. Uh, yeah, you're one of the good guys, apparently, and I'm one of the bad guys because I don't, I don't have my Bible memorized. Um, well, so we were talking about that passage and um, just kind of diving into some of the, because it started before that. It was the verses leading up to it as well. And um, we we're diving into some of the language in there because it says um, can separate us from the love of God. So it's not me as an individual, but like us. Um, and so I was like, well, that sounds hopeful. Like this is for us, not just me or like a few people, but earlier than in the passage, it says something about God's elect. And and we were just talking about like how that language, or at least that translation makes it seem like, well, it's only for the good guys, or it's only for the elect few that, that God has pulled aside and everyone else is hosed. Um, and, and the, the pastor who's a good friend of mine who was leading it was talking about like, well, we tend to think of that, that idea of being elect as, uh, like a privilege, but he was saying being God's elect is more actually a responsibility. Like you were talking about like us for them, if we're God's elect, then, then we're, we're serving them and we're for them, not better than and above them. So I think that that's really beautiful. You know, one thing I was thinking when you were talking about that, Russell, is when we frame the world in kind of us versus them, it 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 also creates a negative identity formation. And it's something I really struggle with right now because I, you know, when someone asks me about my faith, I automatically say, I'm a Christian, but not one of those. You know, I'm I'm an ex-evangelical. And I tend to identify with more negative expressions in terms of what I am against or the the community I've left as opposed to what I'm for. And even, you know, gosh, I guess even us progressive Christians can can struggle with those binary ways of thinking about it as well. So I was convicted. I, I feel convicted <laughs> by what you just said. So, which, which by the way, I, I'm pretty sure that we have a spiritual mentor in common. Um, my guess is that during your time at Duke that you were influenced by Stanley Hauerwas. Is that, is that correct? That's correct. Yeah. He was my thesis advisor there. Oh man. So I'm I'm older than you. I was introduced to the the teachings of Hauerwas way back as an undergraduate in the early 90s and took a class called Christ and Culture which was actually taught by a Hauerwasian disciple. Um and by the way for our listeners if if you don't know who Hauerwas is, Time magazine dubbed him America's best theologian way back in 2001 and I can remember him distinctly as an undergraduate. He came and spoke in chapel and the only thing I remember is the dude swore like a sailor, like he's <laughs> dropping F-bombs from the pulpit. The first time I'd ever heard that. So, yeah, we we all loved Howard Wasp. But when, <laughs> when I began to actually read him, I, I started 
I started recognizing and understanding his his ardent uh, pursuit of nonviolence and this whole notion of loving enemies and rejecting violence, especially especially the American penchant toward war. So I, I'm curious, since he was a part of your thesis committee, did did he have a similar effect on you? as it relates to pursuing pacifism and or nonviolence as a part of your, as a part of your faith journey? Yeah. So one of the things uh, Stanley Harawas teaches is that uh, loving your enemies is at the center of the Christian faith, that it is not um, just the sort of uh, casual thing that Jesus mentioned that like, oh yeah, carry on business as usual, um, you know, be senators and soldiers and whatever you are, but uh, also while you kill your enemies, make sure to love them. Um, you know, as has been interpreted in the past, that's, uh, a, that is a crass caricature of Augustine's position. Um, but also love your enemies is not an impossible ideal, uh, that something that we can't actually do. And Jesus taught it, said it so that we, um, realize our own inadequacies, um, which is, that's a, uh, a crass caricature of Reinhold Niebuhr's position. Um, for Hauerwas, and I think he's right on this point, love your enemies is the center of the Christian faith. Um, that God loved God's enemies, um, including us while we were still sinners, uh, to quote Romans, uh, and that this uh, love of enemies, this, this not uh, dividing the world into us versus them, but this um, going toward those who have um, betrayed you or harmed you uh, in a spirit of forgiveness and reconciliation and peacemaking um, is the central characteristic of who God is. And uh, also the central characteristic of the world we find ourselves in, um, that, that people who uh, carry crosses work with, with the grain of the universe, um, to use a, a phrase Hauerwas took from John Howard Yoder, um, that we are freed as Christians um, to live in the world truthfully and peacefully um, and compassionately with one another and a lot of the justifications that we tell ourselves and tell others about why we have to act violently or why we have to lie are actually false. Um, and so the, <laughs> from the perspective of the world as we understand it, from the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and the story as it continues on after that, um, that we can then see the world differently and see people as made in the image of God, including ourselves as made in the image of God, and act accordingly as well. Uh, so we're, we're kind of living in a different story um, from the story we might otherwise have believed. One of the things Hauerwas is notable for is his emphasis on church um, and going to church and being a part of this living community as a place where we are trained to see the world rightly and to see ourselves rightly in it. Um, so it's not so much about um, here are the doctrines you need to hold on to these doctrines and defend them or else. Um, it's more of a, um, you, your mind has been uh, influenced in different ways and distorted uh, to see some people as your enemies and to mourn when other people rejoice and rejoice when other people mourn uh, and mm. to lie to yourself and lie to others and deceive yourself. Um, in order to feel good about yourself. And here in church, uh, that, that ideally speaking, a church should be a place where we uh, practice reconciliation, where we practice confession, where we practice repentance and uh, see ourselves as God sees us uh, as beloved and treat one another as God wants us to treat one another as beloved as well. Um, and so that, that, that for me growing up evangelical, there's this been this like, 
well, you go to church because that's what you do. <laughs> I mean, it was kind of expected of you. Um, you know, I went on these mission trips around the world because that's what my sisters did. And like, this is what you do. You go on these mission trips. Um, and so being given with being given a rationale for like, actually, no, you go to this, you go to this church to be transformed and to see yourself more rightfully, I mean, more, more correctly. Uh, it was really a liberating insight for me. Hmm. Something with the concept of nonviolence and pacifism that I think gets confused um, is what I've heard is um, pacifism means, well, then I'm just going to let all the, and here's that phrase, bad guys into the country by opening up the borders and just, you know, I'm just going to let anything and everything in and hope that no bad comes to me or that it means like letting someone come into your house and molest your wife while you stand there helplessly because you are pacifist and so you can't do anything about it. And I guess it kind of seems like it, it's, it becomes a very um, dualistic way of thinking of it. It's either you take up arms and you're almost militaristic or you become a doormat who's just vulnerable to all sorts of harm. And so I'm wondering, as someone who's studied this um, and was even discipled by Hauerwas, how have we misunderstood that um, or how have we misunderstood that call to love our enemies? Um, and what would you say a more accurate understanding of that is? Yeah, this is a, this is a big question. I mean, so I think uh, oftentimes nonviolence is, is framed as simply a negative. I mean, which makes sense in the name nonviolence and pacifism, even though the word comes from the, the root meaning peace, you know, pox, um, it sounds like passive. Um, and so in English, it has this unfortunate connotation of <laughs> doing nothing. Um, so I think a lot of people, when they start thinking about pacifism, they make this two-sided distinction is either, either your choices are violence or doing nothing. Um, and they tend to forget that 99.99% of what you do in your life isn't violence. <laughs> I mean, most <laughs> of our times is spent doing something that isn't violent. Um, and, I mean, depending on how you define violence. So I, I, the, the thing is that pacifism is not doing nothing. It's just, uh, it's a, it's not a negative prohibition first and foremost. I mean, I, th I think pacifism for sure, there is a rejection of killing, but it is uh, not rooted out of a, uh, the no is secondary to the yes. Sort of like, um, adultery is bad, but it's not just that if you don't commit adultery that you're doing fine. Um, you shouldn't <laughs> want to commit adultery because you should want to be faithful to your spouse. There's like the, the, the positive <laughs> implies the negative. Um, and uh, we shouldn't fixate on the negative uh, strictly. And so similarly, I mean, Christian nonviolence is rooted in enemy love. So not just don't kill your enemy, that you take for granted, but actively love your enemy. Um, so living in such a way that acknowledges the full humanity and belovedness of every person and also encouraging them to live into that full humanity and belovedness in a way that dispels the illusions they currently have about their own life and the felt need they have to um, sin and to commit violence. Um, so it, this this loving your enemy's commitment is first and foremost a positive commitment. I mean, pacifism is something that you do. Um, Nonviolent direct action is one manifestation of it in which that's a way of attaining social change um, by uh, constructive means rather than destructive means. Um, so, mm -hmm. so I think pacifism is 
Um, this is, I should also say this is a confusion that pacifists get into sometimes as well, um, to where they think if you just, as long as you aren't doing violence, you can check the box that you're, you've loved your enemies. Good job. Um, and that's not either. Um, that uh, It's not just this negative dimension, but, but pacifists have, I mean, pacifists have dirty hands too. Uh, it's just that they're dirty from tending wounds and tilling soil um, and, and doing the sort of work that leads to uh, sustainable um, well-being uh, for their group and for the groups that society may put them into opposition with or, or those groups' actions may put them into opposition with. I think uh, for me, this, the, 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 one of the best articulations of pacifism comes from Desmond Tutu. Who roots it in the uh, South African under idea of Ubuntu, the idea that a person is a person through other persons, that we are not most fully ourselves, uh, we are not most fully healthy and whole in isolation or in exclusion, but rather through cooperation and seeking the good of one another, we also realize that which is best for ourselves. Um, and so Nonviolence in Christian pacifism, I would say, is often characterized as being about purity and refraining from something. Um, and it's much more about this spirit of Ubuntu, the spirit of seeking the good, um, not only for oneself and for the people that one cares about, but also for the enemy. Well, you know, it's fascinating that you say that because we've had kind of two public uprisings in the United States over the last 10 months or so. We had over the summer protests with Black Lives Matter. And obviously some of that got violent, but it seems to me a, a predominant version of that was protesting for, standing up for an active nonviolence for the oppressed, for the marginalized. And so you had individuals that were taking action in very nonviolent ways for the other. Then on the flip side, uh, we had a predominantly white male majority version of individuals who stormed the Capitol in violence to protect their own interests. And can you speak into that as, as it relates to this concept in terms of, you know, I, I saw two forms of protest. One was predominantly uh, nonviolent and for the other, the other one was rage, protect myself, and, you know, wage war in order to ensure that I don't lose my place at the center of culture. Is that an accurate interpretation of very complex issues? Or am I being a little bit too simplistic here? I think you're naming some of the factors in it for sure. I mean, I think one of the other factors is truth. Um, I mean, so, mm -hmm. so Mohandas Gandhi, in his autobiography, he referred to it, he, he sub the subtitle is the story of my experiments with truth. And for him, um, the, the nonviolent direct action, Sutyagraha, is uh, about um, seeking the truth and seeking to have the truth be manifest um, in contrast to the various lies and illusions that are, that are obscuring it. And so, you know, the truth that those that are considered untouchable actually have humanity, the truth that, um, you know, segregation is um, dehumanizing, et cetera. Um, a lot of the early pioneers of nonviolent direct action root it in a method that um, clears away some of the illusions that obscure the truth um, and reveals the actual truth. I mean, so for Martin Luther King, the truth that, you know, all men are brothers and all women are sisters and we are all um, 
woven together in one uh, fabric of destiny uh, and that policies that harm some people also harm other people and we should uh, work together to um, surmount these uh, oppressive um, uh, institutions um, is is a truth that he saw was built into the the fabric of, of reality I mean sort of like we were saying earlier that's that's the story that is true uh, and we just don't always acknowledge it and so I think one of the important distinctions to be made between some of the black lives matter uh, protests, and the the capital uh, protest is that the the capital protest is based on a lie, the lie that the mm. election was stolen um, and that it was rigged. Uh, and uh, to quote Donald Trump, I, I won this election by a lot. Um, <laughs> whereas the Black Lives Matter movement is 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 rooted in trying to showcase the fact that the pol police system disproportionately uh, harms and disadvantages the, the black community and that there is a lack of accountability uh, when it comes uh, to prosecuting uh, police offenders in the United States, which is true. Um, and so I think that there is nonviolence among the many other things it does is it reveals something. It, it testifies to something. Mm. And uh, I think that's one other dimension beyond just violence or nonviolence um, that has to be taken into consideration when we assess these different uh, movements. That's really good. Like your Duke education is is shining right there. I, I, would, <laughs> I would have never gone there. That I never even connected the notion of truth. So bravo. All right. So in a world of division, in a world of polarity and, and binaries, what, what gives you hope? I mean, when you are looking at the future of faith from your vantage point in the academy, uh, what gives you hope about the future of Christianity? Well, I, I'm not super qualified to speak about Christianity outside of America. Um, so I'm sure there are lots of uh, uh, signs of hope uh, around the world. And, and I think actually that's that's one sign of hope in and of itself is I think there's a greater dialogue and interchange between uh, different global communities. Um, and, you know, I, I mentioned that I went on mission trips and, and there was this, I think the organization I went with was better than most because we were actually doing practical things to help people solve practical problems. But there was this sense that like um, in America, we had the gospel and in the global south uh you know they needed it um, right. and, uh it turns out that uh both of those uh were uh, a bit a bit un, uh incorrect um that is a fact that in america we did not necessarily have the gospel and that everyone needed the gospel mm -hmm. um and so i think there, this, the globalization and the sense that um this this cold war mindset at least as it occupied in america had the sense that America is the last bastion of freedom and democracy in the world, um, and and also Christianity. I mean, because remember, our opponents were the godless communists, right? Um, and so, as as the Cold War mindset, it's it's still very much with us because, as I mentioned, we're drawn toward us versus them binaries. But as I think that way of dividing up the world is ebbing, um, it's. Uh, it's, it's come to be a, a greater dialogue between different uh, communities, uh, different religious groups, um, and uh, a, a less of a sense, at least among American Christians, that uh, uh, America is the ba last bastion of Christianity and must be preserved at all costs. Uh, and more people are becoming a little bit more open, slowly in some places, much more quickly in other communities, uh, to criticizing um, what they take to be uh, uh, the, the flaws 
in uh, American Christianity and American politics, certainly, and, and also to separating those two things from one another. Because if our enemies are no longer the godless communists um, or the, you know, the, the Taliban or something, but uh, we have a different way of framing uh, the conflicts that we find ourselves in, then we're more open to multifaceted thinking about what needs to change and what can change. Mm. But also, I mean, I should say where my hope really lies in the fact that the good news doesn't depend on humanity. Uh, and if we uh, mess up, the rocks will cry out uh, in our stead. Uh, and that not being in control, not having it all figured out, uh, being tired and confused all the time uh, is not a threat to civilization or to the I mean, well, it's not a threat to the, the good news, but is the normal condition of Christian life. Uh, and, uh, and that that's, that's okay. Mm. Yes. I thank you for that, Russell. Um, okay. We're going to do one last thing with you and for listeners, we did not prepare him for this at all. So he's just, we're going to do some rapid fire questions and we want you to just answer them as quickly as you can without thinking. Okay. All right. Are you ready for it? No. <laughs> all right. Well, too bad. Here we go. Uh, the first question is very important. Why do you think that some people think breakfast is important? It is. Breakfast is the most important meal of the day. Okay, follow up to that. What are your feelings on grape nuts? I'm strongly pro-grape nuts. Um, I'm nuts about the nuts. I never travel without the gravel. Uh, it's uh, Everyone else just has weak teeth if they can't handle grape nuts. Now I know I why... It. Now I know why your wife asked me to ask you those questions. Ah. <laughs> I'm just going to say that was very binary. That was very us versus them for those of us who, you know, don't like grape nuts, but whatever. I'm sure, and I haven't checked the Bible, but I'm sure God still loves you. Okay, that's, that's good. All right. <laughs> What's your favorite moment in the Duke-UNC rivalry besides last year when Trey Jones just ripped the absolute heart out of the Tar Heel? Oh boy. Um uh, my my favorite moment in the Duke UNC rivalry. I mean I I uh I remember going to Carolina whenever Duke uh whenever we played against Duke and we won, which was pretty frequently when I was there. Um we uh would go and storm Franklin Street and light fires and whatnot. I, I don't think they're still doing that uh, under uh COVID-19, but knowing college, they might still be doing <laughs> Uh, but just getting to uh, celebrate with my friends. I remember one time there was a Duke game on and we ordered pizza and the um, the pizza delivery guy came in when there was like one minute left in the game and we made him stay with us um, and watch the end of the game and tipped him really well uh, because we're like, it, he can't be delivering pizza while there's a game. <laughs> like He needs right. to see the conclusion of this game. Yeah, that's awesome. I mean, it's crazy to me just how much uh, the basketball world is, you know, centered in the triangle between those two incredible universities, those incredible programs. So, yeah. All right. Uh, next question. If you could get on a plane today and go anywhere in the world, where would you go and why? I wouldn't because we're in the middle of a global pandemic. Next question. <laughs> <laughs> how uh, politically correct of you, Russell? Um, okay. uh, are you guys not wearing masks during this interview? <laughs> no, I, I have on pajamas and a mask, so we're, we're fine. <laughs> the Zoom uniform. Yep. Oh, man. Uh, okay, last question. What was your favorite bit from your stand-up comedy days? Oh, gosh. Um, I'll do a one-liner. Um, the YMCA is a pretty easy dance, but it's a lot more difficult in Japanese. 
I don't even know what that means. <laughs> I'm laughing, but I don't know what it means. It's what they call a thinker. Okay. <laughs> Tonight at 1.30 in the morning, it's going to hit me and I'm going to laugh. <laughs> Oh, well, on that note, thank you so much for this, Russell. This was really interesting and enlightening, and it was amazing to be able to chat with you and hear some of your stories. So thanks for joining us. Great to be here. Thank you both. And that is it for today's episode. Thanks so much for joining us. Don't forget to hit that subscribe button so you never miss an episode. And for show notes, head to holyheretics.org. You can also find all our social media info there if you're interested in following us. And in case you missed it last time, we have a brand new ebook called Faith Deconstruction 101. That is something that you can get absolutely free. All you have to do is go to www.sophiasociety.org slash ebook. And that's Sophia with a PH. Also, one last thing. We'd like to ask you to consider supporting us on Patreon so that we can continue to bring you amazing content. We have plans in the works for content that's exclusively for our Patreon supporters, which you definitely won't want to miss. So you can find out more information about that and sign up by going to patreon.com slash holyheretics. This episode was written by Gary Allen Taylor and Melanie Mudge and produced by the Sophia Society. Music is by Faith and Foxholes, and sound levels were mixed by Joshua Mudge.